Peace be with you. Amen. It's a, it's a privilege for me to be here with you guys this morning and I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in Houston uh, through his church, Big C Church, but also through uh, Sojourn. And <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what this new season for my wife and I uh, brings. Uh, let's, let's jump right in. So we've been in a sermon series, right? As Drew said, um, going through this book, this second Peter, right? The second letter that, that Peter wrote to kind of a, a dispersed number of, of Christians. And, and the first week we heard uh, Cole Kirby preach out of chapter one, where he called us to persevere in the faith, which leads to growth in action. Right, then the second week we heard Paul Ramsey preach out of chapter 2, calling us to persevere in the faith through right belief. And so to trust the Bible, to reject false teachers, and to beware of their life and their doctrine. Right, and this week we look at a, we look at a chapter where Peter exhorts us in his final words to, to persevere in the faith until the end. So because it's such a long uh, chapter, I'm going to go line by line and exposit line. I'm joking. Um, uh, I, wa- I want to extract the, the main theme of this chapter. And, and I pray that by God's grace, we would see uh, what Peter was trying to urge the Christians that read this uh, letter first. I pray that that would sink into our hearts. So who remembers reading or, or watching the Left Behind series? Maybe some of you who grew up in church. Right, um, I didn't because I didn't grow up in church. Um, however, the first year that I became a Christian, I I remember some friends that I had at the time were like, "You need to watch this series and you know, watch this movie." And so I watched the first movie, and it was pretty intense. Like I was left like thinking, "What's going to happen? Am I going?" So as I continued to grow in my faith, and as I continued to be exposed to different teachings and to different teachers. Right, TV, books, whatever. Um, I I came across, unfortunately, I came across some pretty, uh, pretty, pretty unhealthy teachings by some of these alarmist preachers, maybe on TV, that would uh, that would point to every everything that happened in culture back to a some prediction they had made about when Jesus was coming back, and so when that date would come, they were left to try to explain away their, their false prediction. And so uh, this morning, I, I'm aware that some of you here may believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I personally don't. I respectfully would disagree with that view, but this is not what I'm here to teach about. We can all agree, regardless of what view you have of the end times, of Jesus' second coming, we can all agree that because of extremists in our Christian subculture, it has caused us as believers uh, to look at talking about the second coming of Christ as sort of a taboo, as something we don't really like to touch much on because maybe, maybe some of us grew up thinking or being taught that uh, if you focus too much on end times or if you, if you dive so deeply into revelations, you're, you'll become a weirdo. You'll, you'll become so, so extremist and, and alarmist where you'll, 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 you'll pile up canned goods in your attic and in your basement Right? And it's, it really is regrettable that because of some extremists, it has caused us as Christians, it has caused 
some of us as Christians to, to not dwell upon, to not think upon, to not study and meditate on this beautiful truth of the second coming of Christ. Why is it truly regrettable? Well, because if you don't have the end in mind, if we don't have the end always in mind, we, we do lose the empowerment that we need to live holy lives today. And we'll see that this morning. And I would also add that if you're a Christian here this morning and maybe you've begun to drift away from the pursuit of holiness, then I would, I would say that you've lost sight of the end goal of your Christianity and of, of Christianity's ultimate hope and purpose. Our Christian subculture has allowed, unfortunately, this extremism to push us into this other direction of extremism where we don't allow the second coming to be of daily remembrance. But we'll see today just how important it is to keep the end in mind. And, And what I want us to get this morning, if you walk out of here with one thing, I want it to be this. That reflecting on Jesus' second coming empowers you for godly living and for effective living today. That reflecting on Jesus' second coming empowers godly and effective living today. So let me give us some context before we, we jump into uh, this passage. Second Peter, we've heard over the last couple of weeks, was a, was a letter written by Peter before he was martyred for the faith, before he was killed for the faith. And you can kind of hear the urgency with which he preaches or with, he, with which he writes Right? Kind of like a, a father, an elderly uh, father or mother, knowing that their day is coming very soon when they'll pass away and they sit their, their kids down to give them that one last talk. I was, I was, I was blessed to, to, to have my grandfather pass away uh, as a Christian. His whole life he lived without Christ. And in the last six months of his life, he came to the Lord. And, and, and he knew that his life was coming to an end. And the Lord allowed him to sit with all of his eight children, grown with families, and give them that last talk. And I can imagine that sense of urgency is what was gripping Peter, knowing that this might be the last letter, this might, these might be the last words that he writes to these believers. And in regards to the false teachers mentioned in this letter, we see here that the central teaching that they were uh, spreading was uh, this teaching that was encouraging doubt about whether the Lord Jesus was returning a second time at all. And primarily they used the Lord's delay in the midst of injustice and persecution and suffering as proof that he would indeed not return a second time. And so it's in the midst of this dangerous and poisonous teaching that Peter addresses his readers. So let's begin. Let me reread the first uh, seven verses for us. It says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
But they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So right off the bat in verse 1, we see that Peter is, is stirring up their sincere mind. Another translation puts it this way. He's arousing wholesome thinking, their wholesome thinking, by way of reminding them of things that they already knew, things that they had already been taught. Why? Why was he reminding them? Because of the dangerous characteristics that these false teachers were encouraging. And, and, and these, these characteristics are scoffing, sinfulness, and skepticism. So that was Peter's urgent motive, which is to warn them about these characteristics. But first, before we jump into looking at these characteristics, why did Peter use this method of reminder? Reminding them of truth. Because we know, brothers and sisters, reminders uh, address the whole person. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. In biblical thinking, reminders grip the whole person so that we're possessed again by the gospel and its truth. And so that we're energized to live for the glory of God. Reminders of the gospel, truth, put things in perspective for us. They transport our minds to the past for motivation. They point us to the future for hope. And empower us for effectiveness in the present. And we know that Peter was reminding them of what the prophets and the apostles had predicted long ago. He, they had predicted that Christ would indeed return a second time. He would come back for his bride. But he would also judge the nations. He would judge the world. So he's encouraging them with a, a reminder of this truth of Christ's second coming in light of these false teachers' denial of the second coming. And so we see that these false teachers were scoffers, right? It says that knowing this, first of all, all uh, that, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And so to scoff is to mock, is to ridicule, to make fun of something, to see something as worthless, and in verse 3, Peter calls these false teachers scoffers. And here we have an ironic situation because Peter here is using irony to prove his point. So the fact that there were scoffers among them, scoffing at the second coming of the Lord, was actually proof that Christ was indeed coming back. Because there, there had already been prophesied before that scoffers would come in the last days. So after Christ ascended back into heaven and the last days began, it had already been predicted that these kind of men and women would arise within the church. So Peter's reminding his readers, hey, this, we already know that this was coming. But this actually further cements the reality that Christ is coming back. And we know that when, when someone scoffs at something like these false teachers did, Scoffing at a particular truth is always followed by or connected to sinful living. And so scoffing and their licentious lifestyles, their sinful lifestyles. We heard from Paul last week, right, 
the characteristics of these false teachers. They were given over to, to passions and to greed. And they were seeking to defend their sinful lifestyles. And so they scoffed at the second coming of the Lord when he would come in judgment to justify their sinful living. And to defend this, right, to defend this, they used their skepticism. They used, tried to use rational explanations or theological loopholes to try to defend why they believed that Christ wasn't coming back. So they ask things like in verse 4, where is this coming that he promised? I can almost, I can almost hear the, the false teachers say something like this. The second coming isn't real. It's just meant to scare you into obedience. Let go of that fear of the coming judgment. Live how you want to live. There is grace. There's no judgment here. Look at how much God is delayed in coming back. If he was truly coming back, wouldn't he have come back already? Look at all the injustice on earth. Look at how much persecution you've had to endure. Where is your God? And I know we don't have to search far in our culture to, to, to identify where we hear this kind, of, this kind of message today. People in our day that twist the Bible to defend their sinful lifestyle. Even movements that have risen up, twisting the Bible or trying to debunk the Bible in search of freedom you're becoming slaves, right? And today, in our culture, if you confront someone in love, you're looked at as judgmental. You're looked at as intolerant because out of love, you want to share truth with them. The teaching of Christ today, Christ coming back today to judge and to pour out his wrath on those who rebelled against him and his kingdom is seen as archaic. It's seen as outdated. It's seen as something that should be changed in our Christianity by outsiders. People scoff at Orthodox Christian teaching on sexuality. And they slander us as hateful people, often misrepresenting what we truly believe and how we truly feel about our fellow neighbors. And so this is what was going on these false teachers were twisting the scriptures, and Peter wanted to remind his readers of truth. And then he shifts from defending the second coming against these false teachings to exhorting the believers directly about the second coming in verses 8 through 10. He says, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then in verse 15 he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So here, Peter counters the, the false teachers' the skepticism right, for, for his readers in this section. And he corrects their wrong view of God. And so, so the, the false teachers had 
had God's wisdom, God's mercy, and God's justice all wrong. His wisdom, his mercy, and his justice. So they ask, where is this God? Why has he delayed? He's not coming back. They, they had his wisdom, his infinite wisdom all wrong. See, then Peter here says, hey, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. God is not constrained by time. In his infinite wisdom, he knows the day he's coming back. And for us as finite creatures, as people who are constrained by time, to question God about timing is foolish. And he's pointing this out to them. And then he points to God's patient mercy as the reason why it may feel to us like he's delaying. And God's infinite wisdom and mercy towards us, he is patient in returning for this one reason, that he does not wish that any of his children perish but that they would all come to repentance and faith in him. And here we have, we have a great picture of God's, God's great love towards, this, towards, towards all, towards the world. But his mercy and his patience, although it's great and although his mercy reaches into the heavens, cannot be misunderstood. And Peter's quick to point to this here. He will indeed come back and judge with righteousness. Peter reminds his, his readers, he reminds his readers, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So right after he, he reminds his readers, hey, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting you to, to perish, but to come to repentance. Pointing to God's mercy quickly right after that, he says, hey, but, but don't forget, the Lord is coming back. He will come back like a thief. He will come back in judgment against those who rebelled against him and his kingdom. He still will punish one day. He is coming back. But the, the good news is that God has provided a way to escape this coming judgment. And how do we escape this, this judgment that is coming? We escape by making Christ our refuge. See, when we talk about mercy and justice, and I, I loved the song that J.J. sung, Justice and Mercy. See, he said they meet on the cross. When we talk about God's justice and we talk about his mercy, there's, a, there's, there's a, a seeming paradox that we find here that really the cross reconciles and resolves. See, if God is just, Scripture says that it is, it is a wicked thing to pardon the wicked. But God pardons us as wicked people. The Bible also says that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, listen to what the Lord told Moses. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How can God's mercy and justice fit within that same passage? And the answer, brothers and sisters, Paul gives us that answer in Romans 3, 
23 through 26 where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And listen to this. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here, brothers and sisters, Peter points to God's mercy and then quickly reminds his readers as well of God's justice. That indeed God will come back to judge. But the one who has reconciled God's justice and his mercy is Christ on that cross when Christ died on that cross on behalf of sinners like you and me, the justice that you deserve, the justice that I deserve, the wrath that was being stored up for me, Christ in his mercy took it upon himself in our place so that now those who make Christ their refuge find no more wrath, no more anger, no more rejection from God, but rather mercy, grace, love, and patience. Because God was fierce in his wrath towards Christ, he can be slow to anger and patient with us. And after this, after Peter reminds his readers of these attributes of God, he goes on to call them to righteous living, to keep the end in mind. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So you have this call to be holy and godly, kind of sandwiched in between a reminder of the end. Right before that, he's reminding them that Christ will come and judge. And he says, in light of that, what kind of lives of holiness and godliness should you not be living as you, as you eagerly await his second coming? There is no clearer passage of scripture than this to, to call us to constant remembrance and reflection of the reality of Jesus' second coming. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, reminds us that one day Jesus will indeed make all things new. What a, what a beautiful, what a beautiful verse. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. One day all the, all the suffering that, that you're enduring one day all the suffering that we have to go through will be done away with. One day, brothers and sisters, this will be a distant memory when we're with Christ and all we see is his beautiful face and we'll worship him. And brothers and sisters, God is glorious enough to never lose your attention. On this earth, brothers and sisters, sometimes we can get apathetic. Sometimes we lose sight of the reality of God's glory but one day we'll be with him when this flesh will no longer 
restrain us, will no longer hold us back from worshiping him for all of eternity. And if we have that set in our minds, if that is at the forefront of our thinking, that empowers us today, brothers and sisters, to wait with hope in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain where we ask God, why did this happen? Listen, listen to what Paul tells Titus in chapter 2 of Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen to this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Paul to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 1, and 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And Titus, we're reminded, brothers and sisters, that, that contrary to, to popular belief, those who are the most heavenly minded are actually fit to do the most earthly good a people that God has ransomed for himself who are zealous for good works. Christ redeemed a people zealous for good works. So the question we, we must all ask ourselves this morning is this, am I living with the end in mind, eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, or have I been more focused on earthly concerns, as important as they may be. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say as we get near to, to closing. He says, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And then the, the C.S. Lewis Institute adds additional commentary to this and says this. Sadly, many of us are so tethered to this world that the things it offers are so tethered to this world and the things it offers that we scarcely take thought of the world to come. Yet it is precisely by reflecting, ref reflecting often on the joys, beauties, and satisfactions of eternal life in the world to come that we find a hope that empowers us to live fully for Christ today. Let us, let us be people who reflect, brothers and sisters. Let us, let us be a people who often think of that day, that glorious day when the eastern sky cracks and Christ comes back for his bride and he does away with all injustice. He does away with all division. And we will worship him forever with nothing to hold us back. Let that be at the forefront of our minds. Like Edwards prayed, let eternity be stamped on our eyeballs. Let us pray.
Father, we can do nothing apart from you. So even this, we, we admit, we uh, repent, we, we know, God, that we are finite and we are imperfect. But you, you saved us anyway, knowing that we were imperfect and sinners and that we would go astray because of your great love for us. And so we ask you, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs, Lord. That, that the beauty of Christ that we will one day enjoy that that would encourage us into godly and effective living today for the sake of your glory and for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our neighborhoods, God, for the, for the heights and for Montrose and uh, East End and Galleria and Spring Branch and every other neighborhood in this city, Father. And we would be zealous to do them good because we have the end in mind. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.